Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. This is the first in a series of interviews examining theater during the year of the pandemic and beyond. This first interview is with Pam McKinnon, who is in her third year as artistic director of ACT. A noted director before joining ACT, Pam McKinnon won an Obie Award and then was nominated for a Tony on Broadway for Clybourne Park. A leading director of the works of Edward Albee, she won a Tony Award in 2013 for a revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. In the San Francisco Bay Area, most notably, she directed Albee's Seascape for ACT last season, and before that directed the musical Amelie for Berkeley Rep. Pam McKinnon, as the artistic director of ACT, 2021 would have been your third season, is that correct? That's correct. At what point did you realize that season number three was going to change? Had you already organized the season? Absolutely. We were about to announce. It certainly has changed. We're a very busy organization right now. We're just not doing in-person theater. We're not doing what we usually do, but there's a lot of programming, which I'm sure we can talk about. But, you know, we were about to announce our 2021 season in March. I was in late previews for Lydia Diamond's play, Tony Stone, which we opened at the Geary and opening night happened to be our closing night because of the pandemic. So that was what, March 11th. And we were going to, I believe, announce our season on Monday, March 16th, when the city of San Francisco shut down because of the pandemic. So it all came tumbling, tumbling down within, you know, yeah, within days. And here we are. Is that ever going to come back? Not to ACT at, at, at this point, certainly not in the short term. That was the middle of my second season. We had the production of Gloria running at the Strand, our smaller theater, and we opened Tony Stone. So six performances in, previews into opening. Tony Stone was built as a co-production, so in conjunction with Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. And half the cast was Bay Area, half the cast was from D.C. A couple people were in the original New York production that I also directed. We still hope to do it in Washington, D.C. at Arena Stage. But those dates, of course, get pushed out. Let's go back then. You have to shut it down. And suddenly, what is your first thought? Did you have enough backup at that point? This was before the stimulus to make sure everybody stayed on staff. What was going on at that particular time? And then as it played out, what happened? So this is mid-March. The world is moving really fast. I mean, I'm sure you know everyone has vivid memories of those early weeks. I mean, certainly we immediately had to lay off people. We were supposed to be in rehearsal for Rocky Horror, Rocky Horror Show. We never got into rehearsal for that. So that was a company that was going to be employed by us and then wasn't, you know, also a creative team, you know, obviously 
canceling the rest of the runs of Tony Stone and Gloria right in that in that moment. So a lot of decisions getting made really really quickly. You know, it's not just the the actors on the stage; it's it's creative teams. We had a, another show scheduled for later in the spring, so all those people got laid off. And then, of course, that also means ushers, that means house managers, that means production staff, crew behind the scenes, makeup and wardrobe crew. A tremendous number of people became unemployed almost instantly because we were no longer in production. Well, you also have three theaters to keep open: the Geary. Uh, the Strand, which has multiple theaters in it, and also uh, the venue called The Costume Shop. These are all venues you guys own? We own the Geary, and we almost own The Strand. I mean, by every intent and purpose, we own The Strand. We were renting The Costume Shop, and that is both an actual costume shop, as well as you refer to, you know, this small, kind of wonderful black box theater. So we were leasing that, those those two spaces that are right next door to the Strand. And in, in what, probably late summer, we left that space, as well as, as well as our studio spaces at 30 Grant. Really? So now 30 Grant in San Francisco is just the offices? It's not even the offices. We are down to only having our owned spaces. At the Geary or the Strand? That's right. So your office is now at the Gary? Well, our offices since March have been in people's individual homes, like a lot of a lot of people, but ultimately we will be a, a much more nimble, really use our our spaces creatively. We're still really figuring it out. We also own a floor above the Pinecrest Diner that's attached to the Geary Theater that has been used by our box office, has been used by our telemarketers, but there is space that hasn't really been used that efficiently. So we're going to be creative and design some office space and conference space and, you know, really, I, I think I think when we come back and are able to be in person, we will be activating our lobby spaces, our dressing rooms, our, you know, our spaces that we normally use for events or small cabarets, and we'll just be really maximizing what we own. Have you been in touch with other theater companies outside San Francisco area to see how they're coping? Oh, yeah, I have a lot of meetings. That is sort of the one or a silver lining in this moment. You know, geography means nothing. We're all working from home and we have a lot of, I have a lot of standing meetings with new artistic directors as well as other directors, artistic directors and managing directors around the country for sure. Pam McKinnon, at what point did you realize that streaming would have to, on some level, replace well, we were actually really early because we captured Tony Stone and Gloria, the two shows that were running, and made really early concession deals with the unions to get those two shows out on demand through a platform called Broadway HD. Um, so we were actually one of the first. Those ran for two weeks in April. Were you thinking about Zoom productions? The first one I saw was In Love and Warcraft this fall. A big part of American Conservatory Theater is the conservatory. We have an MFA actor training program, and there were 
three productions that were slated for that spring for our MFA actors, our student actors, and we pivoted all of those to the virtual sphere, two of them on Zoom and one of them as an audio or radio play. So that was all in April and May. So really, really early. And then In Love and Warcraft went over so well, and there was really a hue and cry to do it again. So we did an encore presentation of it as a co-production with a theater up in Juneau, Alaska called Perseverance. And so that was probably when it sort of hit your radar. So that was in September. How do you find a a theater in Alaska that's going to co-produce it? Perseverance is a theater very much on the map. I directed there um, early in my career. It's a, you know, it's a smaller theater, but it is Alaska's not-for-profit professional theater. It was started by Molly Smith. It's a big deal theater. Leslie Ishii now runs it. She is an ACT alum. She knows quite well Peter Quo, who was the director of In Love and Warcraft. She saw it when it was first done in May and was really taken by it. And Peter was an early director who I think did sort of wonderful creative work in the Zoom format and, you know, was interviewed about it and taught, taught classes for people, you know, how to sort of activate Zoom creatively as a theater director in this moment. So Leslie approached ACT and said, you know, could we could we make a partnership? And um, that was really appealing. You know, and, and, and another thing that Leslie and I've been talking about is this whole sort of Pacific corridor, right? There used to be, you know, people would come out of ACT actor training, maybe land in LA for a bit, you know, maybe go down and work at South Coast Rep in Orange County, you know, uh, down to San Diego, San Diego Rep, um, the Old Globe, up to Seattle to work at the Rep up there or into on. And, you know, Leslie really harkens back to, and, and OSF in between, you know, harkens back to really building a career along the Pacific. And so she and I have talked about, like, how can we reactivate that? And that's also something that Nataki Garrett, Garrett and I have talked about. And she's the new artistic director at OSF. I mean, all, all three of us, there are a lot of brand new artistic directors who have been, you know, saddled with a lot, including this pandemic and sort of industry-wide shutdown, but what can we make of it? How do you work at this point with the other two major uh, regional theaters in the area, Theater Works and Berkeley Rep? I'm in frequent conversation, especially with Joanna. Joanna and I go back probably 20 years. She has produced my work when she was the artistic director up at New York Stage and Film. And so I was very happy when she got that job and getting to know, I'm getting to know Timothy and excited, excited about the barrier, you know, around the corner is going to be a new artistic director at The Magic, a new artistic at Golden Thread. We're really trying to be collegiate and collaborative. You know, I don't, I don't see them as competition at all. I feel really strongly that the more people who are making exciting theater, the more audience there will be. Changing the subject a little bit, Pam McKinnon, did AB5 affect ACT at all? Because I know smaller theater companies suddenly had issues with keeping staffers if the staffers had to suddenly become employees. Yeah, it really didn't. We're we're operating at a different scale. 
comes June and suddenly we have Black Lives Matter. How did that affect your scheduling? How did that affect your decisions? It fit into a lot of conversations we were already having at ACT. It just put some things more on the front burner in a really good and exciting way. You know, demands both coming from sort of national circles. We see you white American theater, as well as another uh, national group called Black Theater United, as well as local groups in the Bay of really, you know, demanding accountability for work being done, calls for racial equity. And we're, we're doing the work. One of the issues with streaming stuff is you're suddenly in competition in a way with Netflix, with Amazon Prime. Do you think in those terms, how do you take live theater, stream it, and maintain the live theater part of it, do you think? Yeah, it's certainly a different medium. We made a commitment in the summer to putting our conservatory and the pedagogy of our students front and center. You know, we are a a large theater with a conservatory in it, as well as, you know, a, a wing that does, I think, really great work within the community and our education and community programs department, as well as the Young Conservatory. So a lot of, you know, sort of actor training, as well as using theater within the community. And we had to cut our budget really extremely in the summer. And with respect to productions, our streaming productions so far have been very centered on the actor training of our MFA students. So that's been, you know, both really exciting in that we hired out of the gate three local Bay Area directors, about three times as many local designers to work with our conservatory students and working on contemporary plays. The, the, the playwrights were all involved in these processes. It really was a concerted effort to make sure that our actor training program was giving our actors access to production. I've certainly been in contact with, you know, my my peer theater leaders around the country. Uh, You know, very few theaters have figured out how to make money on this work, which I guess is sort of your point about like you're now in competition with Netflix and Amazon. I guess I would want to separate out the difference between live because all the productions so far that we've put out have been like made and shared live. So they are live, which is different from a Netflix show. So we are actually sharing time together, if not location. It's live television in a way. Yep, absolutely. And, but then it comes to streaming. Is there much editing done at that point or are they just played as they were? So far, we've been sharing them live. So the audience and the actors truly are sharing time together. And then we have also shared them in sort of on-demand moments. So at that point, sometimes they get edited because, you know, sort of one live performance, you know, we're, we're really learning that, that, 
that the tech, the technology, quite often it comes down to, you know, people's Wi-Fi strength or how much sometimes even in a very, quote, tech forward city like San Francisco, the marina has horrible Wi-Fi. So if an actor is in the marina at 5 p.m. and we're streaming a show, we've had these horrible tech situations where all of a sudden everything is out of sync that hasn't been out of sync before. So frequently for our on-demand portion of what we're sharing with audiences, we've edited, sort of cobbled together sometimes um, the, the four or five takes that we've done of a piece to make it sort of more pristine. One thing that I've found, for instance, with KPFA is that certainly we are a radio station that operates in the Bay Area, but we also are kpfa.org. And as kpfa.org, we're national mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're sort of in competition with other Pacifica stations, but also any non-commercial station, they can come to us. In that sense, ACT's shows can be seen in New York or London as well. What kind of feedback do you get on the national or international level with your streaming? Well, certainly our, our, our two early shows, which were captures of of Gloria and Tony Stone, those got a lot of national attention and even international attention. I would say about 50% of our audience was from the Bay Area and the other 50% was so 50% Bay Area, 25% or so about New York, New York City, and the other 25% spread out through the country and even internationally. And those two shows garnered a lot of press because we were very early out of the gate in the pandemic with with shows. I you know, I know that that Terry Teachout of the Wall Street Journal wrote basically reviewed it as a this is a this is a stream play and and he really loved the opportunity having seen my production of Tony Stone in New York the year before to see a different version of it with different actors same but different and in a different medium so we got some sort of amazing press in that garnered some tickets not a huge number but some tickets around the world and then more recently our streaming certainly there are people in Ireland who watched in Love and Warcraft more recently we did a live stream of an adaptation of Lorca's Blood Wedding some people in Brazil saw it so yeah, again, a few silver linings here and there. Blood Wedding is still playing, right? It is. It's now in its on-demand window. So it's no longer being performed by the actors, but the results of what they performed are available. Blood Wedding runs through November 13th, Friday the 13th. These are recorded. You can bring them back, or is that a problem with uh, Actors' Equity? These are all student productions, right? So we're not dealing with equity for these. But it would be a matter of going back and looking at the deal that we had with the playwright or the adapter in this case. But on the ones like Tony Stone, would that ever come back? I doubt it. It could. I mean, it's all risk and reward, right? So if we think that there's a demand for it, we would reach out to all the unions involved. So that's Actors Equity, that's SDC, that's um, Stage Directors and Choreographers, that's Stage Crew, that's um, Writers Guild. And we would make a new deal with the people involved. TheaterWorks, they had a musical that they managed to put on Amazon Prime. It changes on some level, what all of you are doing 
Do you think some of that is permanent now? I'm a theater director. I really value gathering in space. I really value that synergy between live in-person audience and the stories that are being told and really miss it. I'm grieving it hugely daily. Um, it, I've never gone this long in my adult life without you know, seeing a play. And I know I'm not alone in that, wanting to be in communion with other people and wanting to be in communion through story. But I could certainly see that technology certainly lowers barriers of access and not just, oh, it's great and cool that someone in Turkey or someone in Ireland has seen my work that was, you know, built for the stage in San Francisco, but also lowers, you know, access of ticket price. We're not charging anywhere near as much for these streamed shows as we would for in-person content. It also lowers barriers of entry for like physical accessibility, meaning that that yeah, you can you if 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 you're more tied to your own physical space, if it's hard for you, if if you have mobility issues, you can see a version of this at home. And that is amazing and gratifying. But I certainly don't see it as, as a replacement. I could see it as something that becomes maybe in tandem. Do you think then when you do come back that there will be a tendency to try to record all the shows and maybe stream them for people who can't come in? I mean, a lot of this deals with the cost of that, and the cost of that deals with people and through through their unions but i think the field the field has to be in conversation about this for sure i wouldn't necessarily say that at this juncture you know we 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 have plans to tape everything but certainly i mean no one imagined that this pandemic would would go on this long let alone go on what broadway is now talking nothing until the fall that might very well be what other theaters and other parts of the country have to decide. This is going to be with us a very long time. I also think that it's not like it's not like the pandemic will be done and everyone will come rushing back to the theater either. So I also expect a moment when there's a vaccine, some people will feel safer and more inclined to show up and others won't. And so in that sort of, in those transition months, weeks, months, it might be great to have like a hybrid, a hybrid model of we are live and in person and we're also live and virtual. Sort of the uh, equivalent of a restaurant opening and you can eat indoors, but of course it's safer to eat outdoors and it's much safer to bring the food home. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Let's talk a little bit about how you expanded out, because I went to your website. I noticed that in addition to a listing of potential shows down the road, you have something called what you call Interact, something called Meads Reads, something called Place Here, Time Now. What are these different areas? 
Cool. I'm glad you brought that up. So obviously we're punning on our, our initials, right? As well as, you know, acting. So when we're in person, we had a lot of audience engagement initiatives. So interact initiatives were things like, you know, a talk back. So after a, you know, after a performance, come, you know, come down closer to the stage and ask some questions of actors or prior to a show, go up to a lobby area and talk with a, let's say the, the costume designer about the costumes you're about to see. So interactive events. Well, we have now pivoted these to the virtual realm. So it, so we, so we now call it interactive act at home. And we have a lot of programming. You should check out our website. I say that to the listeners, <laughs> but also to you, Richard. So we're trying to engage our audience. We're, we're doing the best we can. I have a podcast. It's called Place Here Time Now. So far, we have three episodes that are up and running. I monthly talk to two artists who know each other a little bit or a lot. So far, I've been in conversation with Lydia Diamond, who wrote Tony Stone, and that was along with Craig Lucas, Pulitzer finalist playwright and dear friend. And we had a rollicking conversation. After that, I spoke with Bruce Norris and Larissa, Larissa Fasthorse, two wonderful writers. Most recently, I spoke with Philippa Sue and Stephen Pasquale. Next week, I'm speaking with playwright James Iams and Morgan Green. They recently have become co-directors of the Wilma Theater in Philadelphia. So we talk about the art form. We talk about politics. It's called Place Here Time now because we're trying I'm just trying to get a current snapshot of what theater makers are up to so that's a, an audience engagement attempt Meads reads is sort of tantamount to a, a book club our fantastic director of dramaturgy and new work joy Meads and it took brainstorming what should her play reading club be called for her to realize that her last name rhymes with read with reads so meads reads about monthly or every 6 weeks she now has quite a dedicated group and they read a play and gather and she leads people in an amazing conversation there's also something called take 10 take 10 is fantastic take 10 are these like two to four minute videos that our manager of community programs, Stephanie Wilborn, as well as some now guest artists, she creates these videos that are basically like theater games. And, and, and she takes you through these amazing exercises. And sometimes they're geared toward, you know, kids age like six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and others can be done in groups, can be done, you know, by adults. It's, it's a fantastic array of um, sort of unlocking creative potential. And then we've also started something called Takes on a Scene, where we're going back into the recent archives, um, pulling a clip from a production, an archival tape um, of a production. And then we have three different artists who watch the scene and lay down their take on it. Like what, you know, what was happening from the perspective of the lighting designer in the scene? What was happening from the perspective of a director? And it sort of, it gives the, gives our audience sort of a, an insider's view in how theater is made. And all of this is free at act-sf.org, right? It. Yeah, this is all free audience engagement. 
You know, we're really hoping to use this time to like let people interact with theater, build on what they already love, educate people a little bit and build community. There's something called Act Out Loud, Trouble in Mind, Arms and the Man and the Matchmaker. What are those? In the new year, we're going to have in pretty rapid succession readings. So these are rehearsed with professional actors as well as some of our students directed by professional directors. So rehearsed readings of these three classic plays. The first is Alice Childress's Trouble in Mind. Trouble in Mind was supposed to have been the first play written by an African-American woman on Broadway, but Alice Childress didn't take some producer's notes and they told her to hit the road. So that credit goes to Lorraine Hansberry instead a couple years later. But Trouble in Mind is an amazing, an amazing play, and Awoye Tempo is going to be directing that. Coleman Domingo is going to be directing George Bernard Shaw's Arms and the Man. And then um, wonderful local Bay Area director, Don Monique Williams, is directing a reading of Thornton Wilder's The Matchmaker. This is all exciting to me. These are video, audio? These will likely be video, the first two because of the pandemic on Zoom or, you know, comparable format. And then hopefully, because the last one I believe is in April, maybe there's an in-person element to it, as well as then captured and streamed. San Francisco Playhouse decided to do art on their stage. Yep. So those things, I mean, if you keep your distance, you can still do it. Or if you create a pod. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's also a co-production with Woolly Mammoth. Yeah, this is really exciting. We're, we're, you know, we're becoming filmmakers. So this is in conjunction with Woolly Mammoth, which is a smaller, fantastic theater in Washington, D.C. And this is a show called Animal Wisdom. Heather Christian, and we were supposed to do this live, in the spring, but we've pivoted to turn this into sort of a a do-it-yourself, small budgeted, but beautiful film. And we're going to shoot it in Washington, DC, in in the theater. Um, It's a play with music. And it was done um, at a small theater in Brooklyn a few years ago at the Bushwick Star Live. And I'm really excited for it. You know, and we're talking about like, is is this then available to our two audiences first? So that's Woolly Mammoth and American Conservatory Theater's audiences. But then does it get launched? I mean, you mentioned earlier, theaters are now turning to Amazon Prime. David Byrne's American Utopia is on Netflix. Heidi Schreck's What the Constitution Means to Me is on Amazon. Or does this go more, more, the, more the film festival route? Like we're sort of in discussion on how to launch this, but we're, yeah, we're becoming filmmakers. It changes how you look at your job, I guess. Um, When I began thinking about the idea of how theater functions in the pandemic, my first thought was, it's all about survival. But then I guess creativity somehow rears its head and you begin to think, what are you going to do? How are you going to stay alive financially and also how you can be creative? That's right. That's right. It's such a balancing act right now. Certainly, we need to be really fiscally responsible and come through this 
strong. And the goal is always to employ. I definitely see ACT as part of the Bay Area ecosystem. We want to employ artists so that artists can work with us and then also work at a smaller theater. So we pay quite well compared to other theaters in the Bay. I feel as a a large employer, we are very necessary for the ecosystem. And hopefully while we're going through the pandemic, we also make some beautiful and provocative things. Uh, Do you ever consider on some level helping the small theaters like Lorraine Hansberry or Custom Made stay alive? We're all in a really dire situation right now. We talk frequently, we talk about sharing resources, we talk about, you know, sort of moments of, okay, what are the scene shops that still exist in the Bay Area? How can we work together to make sure that our our craftspeople, our artisans have jobs when we come back? How can we use space most effectively? Yeah, we're all trying to share resources, and that's sort of across the board, large to small organizations. Pam McKinnon. The 21-22 season, such as it is, starts with a show called Headlands. That's made in June. It sounds to me like that is more of a hope than a reality. How do you deal with putting a show together when you honestly don't know if the show will play? Yeah, I mean, that's the issue right now. We we announced a season that is 20 21 22 and it starts off virtually and then it it becomes in person and we made that decision based on the knowledge and the guesswork sort of the best guesses that we had when we announced it we wanted we didn't want to announce simply a virtual season we've announced something that spans more than 18 months which is an unusually long um, window of time because we wanted to give both our audiences as well as artists hope that we intend to come back live and in person but always with the caveat that the dates could change and this is all subject to the world being safe enough to gather. I mean, that's, you know, it's, you know, it's not even the fine print, it's the large print on all this. Let's talk a little bit about the coming season and assume that it's going to happen. I mean, I guess I feel it's the current season, right? I mean, that's, that's what I'm trying to say, that like, like we announced the season that spans 19 months. There are five shows that you hope to put in theaters. First one is Headlands. That's May and June. And that's at the Strand. Uh, it's a noir set in San Francisco. That's right. How did that come to you? What is it? What are its themes? It's written by San Francisco's own playwright, Christopher Chen. I've been getting to know Chris uh, in these last couple of years. Um, he's now very much a, a prominent national playwright. The Headlands is a play that was that premiered had its world premiere at Lincoln Center right before the pandemic hit. It's a play I I really love, and ACT should be, you know, should be working with 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 their local writers. And Chris is a fantastic one. Um, the Headlands takes place in San Francisco. It has at its core a man in his mid thirties who is a, an amateur sleuth. 
and he's investigating a cold case file. And we learn early on, he's actually still investigating the cold case of his father's murder. And bit by bit, he needs to investigate not just the murder, but these, these, these clues of memory. And he needs to touch upon his childhood. And, you know, and every time he remembers something, he gets a little closer to solving the murder, but as importantly, solving some emotionally charged scenes in his childhood. It's a, a Chinese American family. It takes place in different neighborhoods in San Francisco, it's very moody. It's um, it has you know at its at its core a murder mystery motor, and it's deeply personal. It's a beautiful play. I hope we get to do it soon. You mentioned on the the website that one of the things about this show is why it sort of needs to be seen is the uh, use of projection design. Chris has written a play that has, as part of its design, as written, is a lot of video. I'm very excited to work with a great video designer or filmmaker. San Francisco remains, you know, still a very new city to me. It's an opportunity for me to have this, like, great tour guide, both, you know, the playwright as well as a videographer, and make something that is of the city and for the city. It's this exploration of this character's mind and the sort of environs around the bay that are invoked in this story. The next show is Freestyle Love Supreme. That was an early Lin-Manuel Miranda show. I was trying to get a read on what it is. It seems semi-improvisational. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so this this came out of Tommy Kale and Lin Manuel Miranda, so director and writer of Hamilton, and also Anthony uh, Veneziali, who is based in San Francisco. It is. It's an improv play with music. It's a group of performers who perform improv hip hop based on prompts from the audience and build it into a play. And so every evening is something different. They performed it on Broadway very successfully at the Booth Theater last fall. And it is one of the most sort of open-hearted, smart, entertaining pieces of live theater I've ever been a part of as an audience member. So I wanted to bring that to the Bay. Was that always in the plans? Yeah. For 2021? Yeah. And so was Headlands. I mean, all of these shows were. And then Soul Train is the story of the TV show, essentially. Yeah. And Don Cornelius's empire. Uh, How did that come about? This is an amazing creative team of um, Camila Forbes, who's the executive producer at the Apollo Theater, the great Apollo Theater in New York, and Camille Brown, who was the choreographer that I worked with on Tony Stone, and also uh, Dominique Morisot, a fantastic playwright as well as book writer of a musical. It came about for ACT because it was announced as uh, a Broadway, uh, intended for Broadway musical with this amazing catalog, right? So all the the artists who performed on Soul Train for all those years, 40 years of TV syndication, piqued my interest when I saw a press, press announcement on it. And the fact that Camille Brown was the choreographer, um, I reached out to her and she put me in touch with her 
Broadway producer and we made a match. We were interested. They needed, you know, a, a place to have the world premiere prior to bringing it into the, you know, the hot spotlight of Broadway and um, to have the Geary Theater and also my relationship with Camille. Um, Joy Meads, the director of dramaturgy in Newark, who I mentioned earlier, she has a relationship with Dominique Moriso. It just seems such a good fit and like just super fun. Uh, Winter's Tale. Now we're moving into 2022. And I think if all goes well, these will actually happen in the theater. You're doing Shakespeare. Uh, you're directing The Winter's Tale. I am. Is that too far ahead to have any thoughts on it? Why did you choose that particular play? It's about toxic masculinity. It's about forgiveness and how hard real forgiveness, a real apology and real forgiveness is. It just feels like an incredibly relevant play right now. And the final show is the Lehman Trilogy, which is a three-hour extravaganza, the story of the Lehman Brothers from their creation to their their fall and disintegration uh, during the economic crisis. Uh, that, that played in Broadway, is that correct? Well, it was in previews on Broadway before the pandemic, so it didn't open. It started at the National Theatre in London and then played at the Park Armory, so that's a, a space on the Upper East Side of New York, and then played the West End in London and then was in early previews prior to the pandemic shutdown. And I, last season, directed a show at the National Theatre and um, was in conversation with the National Theatre producers as they were um, putting the Lehman Trilogy into New York. And we just continued, you know, a conversation about like, what if after its Broadway run, um, it moved to to ACT, and that became a reality. And this is a, a play directed by Sam Mendes. You said it's it's epic, and it is epic in storytelling, but it uses only three actors to play four generations. Um, you know, starts off in the 1860s or 1840s. It's an immigrant story, and then generation to generation turns to banking. We keep on moving through time, and three actors keep on shape-shifting in order to tell this family saga. This is late-stage capitalism. Absolutely. Christmas Carol has been a tradition at ACT since, I guess, Carrie Perloff took over. Oh, no, but before that, it was done during the Bill Ball and Ed Hastings years as well. It's been at ACT for 45 years. This particular iteration, is this video? Is this audio? This year, we're doing an audio version. Peter Quo directed last year's Christmas Carol based on Carrie's original direction. And this year, he is also adapting it for radio. It's again with, with Jim Carpenter reprising his role as Scrooge. We also very much use a Christmas Carol as part of our MFA actor training. It's the third year class. Usually it's their, their opportunity to really flex some muscles and be on the Geary stage, but this time it will be flexing their muscles and creating an amazingly complicated radio play. The Christmas Carol of the end of this season next year in uh, 2021, uh, you had mentioned in an earlier interview that you wanted to re 
recreate and find a new way of doing Christmas Carol. Is that in the works? It's certainly in the works in that ACT has commissioned Craig Lucas, as well as the designer David Zinn, who did the sets and costumes, which included the lizards for Seascape, to work with me on a Christmas carol. But I need to raise a lot of money to build a new one. And we have bigger fish to fry for at least the you know foreseeable few months. Ah, so now that gets back to the pandemic. You can't escape it. And you are interviewing Annette Benning in a couple of weeks? Yeah, yeah, that will be fun. It will be a fun conversation. And that's an example of, of a series. So I'll interview someone else in April as well. So we're busy. It's a lot of programming. Pam McKinnon, looking at the future, can you look at the future? Or is this still day by day? How are we going to get through the next month? We're a large enough organization that we have to look at the future. Any kind of organization larger than two two people, I mean, you, you want to make a plan and then you want to work the plan. And the world is, it's precarious right now. I mean, I mean you can say we're in an industry-wide shutdown. Certainly as a theater maker, I am used to being in rooms with people. That's how we create our art form. That's how we share our art form. So we are, you know, becoming filmmakers. We are becoming live virtual theater makers. We are making sure that our actor training is on point and is worthwhile for both kids throughout the Bay Area and and beyond, because we can do that. That the, you know, those are the silver linings that geography means nothing, as well as for our MFA conservatory. So we're working hard, but we're definitely in planning mode all the time. And certainly sometimes our plans have to change. And, you know, we're really grateful for audiences and donors who so far are going on the ride with us. And one final question, Pam McKinnon. Through all this, how are you holding up? Oh, thank you, Richard, for asking. It's stressful. It's stressful. And all this on top of presidential election and a country, a country that's showing its true colors that, you know, at times seem very ugly. You know, a, a new city, you know, I, I uprooted my life a couple of years ago to come to San Francisco. And that's hugely exciting, hugely rewarding. But to live in a new city that sort of forfeits shut down is stressful. Like it's, it's kind of amazing. Are you sleeping? No, no. Who's sleeping? Are you sleeping? You've been listening to an interview with Pam McKinnon, who is the Artistic Director of ACT, American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. And to find out more and to listen and watch more, you can go to act-sf.org. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. Mm -hmm.